find the answers to questions you may or may not have asked yourself here at Kaleidoscience, Conversations on Cognitive Science, hosted by Elisa Palmer and Sönke Löw. In science, when we usually model things, we make a lot of simplifications and uh, assume a lot of things about the world uh, to maybe have an easier start. But uh, logic also gives us tools to deal with like the fuzziness of the world and uncertainty. And today's topic, we will talk about um, how we can use those fuzzy um statements about the world uh, in combination with uh, AI and neural networks. And in order to talk about it, we have invited a guest and we'd like to welcome Julia Hattendorf. Hello. Um, yeah, generally about Julia, you are a bachelor student at our institute and you are currently working towards your bachelor thesis. That is correct. I am finally finishing my bachelor uh -huh. thesis. <laughs> and I think we're going to learn quite a lot about your topic Yes, the bachelor thesis is the topic of this yeah. episode. <laughs> um, but before, and as always, we start with a short get-to-know game where we or where I give you five sentences and would ask you to finish them. Uh, the first sentence is, as a kid, I always wanted to be. Um, I always wanted to be a scientist in the most generic way. I thought I would be like standing around in a lab coat doing biology and chemistry and physics at the same time. <laughs> so I guess I kind of ended up there. I unfortunately don't own a lab coat though. You could buy one. Maybe I will. <laughs> um, if I was an emoji, I would be... Um, the little space invader emoji on Telegram that like does the jumpy thing. It's like an old video game. Space Invader, like the oldest video game or one of the oldest. Is it like Pac-Man? No. It's something different, but it's like from the same era. It's I like retro. <laughs> uh -huh. I think I have to look that up later. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, my favorite thing to do on a day off is? Um, probably uh, paint or um, do some crafting. Like, uh, yeah, I'm just... I also really like doing creative stuff, and um, it's fun for me. I paint a lot. What do you paint on canvas or? Oh, yeah, yeah. So um, I usually do uh, um, traditional painting and like watercolors and aquarel. Nice. Yeah. Uh, right now, I'm most fascinated by. Um, if it doesn't have to be coxie related, I would say I'm mostly fascinated by coffee preparation, how people around the world make coffee and like the different ways and how it end up ends up tasting so differently. Is and there a fun fact you could share about that? A fun fact? I don't really know if it's a fun fact. It's just that I just enjoy that culture is expressed through the art of drinking coffee sometimes. Mm -hmm. Like sometimes culture and the way of drinking coffee are like really intertwined in a way that I didn't thought before. Yeah. It sounds plausible to some degree, but I've also never actively thought about it. Yeah, like socializing or if you're like on the run to work, you only need a quick espresso and yeah. um, like the way it shapes culture kind yeah. of and culture is shaped by it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I know it's time to call it a day when... Um, 
well, when I had like five bucks in the last five minutes <laughs> and I just, I fix one and I find another one and it doesn't stop and I don't want to do it anymore. <laughs> <clears throat> That sounds like a good spot to stop. <laughs> like I get frustrated while programming really easily. Okay. And right now we are taking a course together and he is the one who keeps me on my computer too. <laughs> keep programming and well I do swear a lot which I think is fun for you sometimes <laughs> <laughs> um, so as Zünke has already said you're currently doing your bachelor's thesis and writing a bachelor's thesis so during your bachelor's time what were the fields that most fascinated you? Um, actually mathematics and informatics I mm -hmm. feel like I actually wanted to start cognitive science because of neuroscience. I was really into neuroscience back then. Um, but then I just did some really cool math courses and informatic courses. And I just like doing things. I like writing down formulas or like coding something. And then um, things making sense, also a big fan of that. So uh, I kind of got roped into the informatics world of cognitive science. That's interesting. It's, uh, yeah, actually, a friend of mine had a very similar experience. Yeah, I think, I think many people have a similar experience. Yeah. But they, especially, I feel like, oh, it might be a bias here, but I feel like especially women are more into the psychological, neurobiological, neuroscience part, usually, and then realize that there's also more which they enjoy. But also I hear from quite a lot of people that they started off with a different main field of interest and then that changed over time. Mm. Um, we I already hinted at the fact that uh, today's topic is um, like about fuzzy logic or that's like the term that we use but I think like not everybody knows what it is can you maybe quickly explain what that is I know that's a big big task but uh, maybe you can give us like a short introduction mm -hmm. so um, like the one line introduction would be that With fuzzy logic, you can have models that incorporate practical knowledge with some level of uncertainty. So um, you have some kind of expert who knows exactly how things work. And then he wants uh, some workers in a factory to also have this knowledge. And then he explains it with fuzzy logic. And this fuzzy logic, um, well, the, the base of fuzzy logic is fuzzy systems. And they were introduced in 1965 by Lofty Sade, who was uh, kind of the founder of fuzzy logic. And um, the, classy the, cl the fuzzy sets are just classes that have unsharp or fuzzy boundaries. So instead of saying something belongs to a class or does not belong to a class, it belongs to a class of a certain degree. So... Um, If I should go into more into this, um, the usual way to explain this is with the heap paradox. You have a heap out of a bunch of grains, and then you take one grain away from it. You say that what you have left is still a heap. But if you keep doing this, in the end you will be left with one grain that, due to, to your earlier definition, would still be a heap, which clearly does not. So we say, well the heap can belong to the class of heap, so how heapiness it is. So you can have kind of like a degree of, okay, how much of a heap is it right now? And that's the whole idea. So um, 
Sadi argues that that's how we also use classes in the real world. Like we say, tall man, beautiful woman, fast car. And uh, that's the classes. And we can say to a certain degree, those are in the classes. And um, yeah, that's the whole idea behind it. So like the factory example, he can say, okay, if production low, then produce product XY faster or something. So we have this low, faster, those are the, those is the that is the fuzziness, essentially. And um, we can then go on to fuzzy systems or controllers, where you have like this if-then relationship. If something is in a fuzzy set, then something else is in another fuzzy set. So like an example would be maneuvering a robot. If wall is very near, then slow down. That is like the idea, then uh, speed low. That is the, the idea behind it. And um, yeah, that's fuzziness for you. Yeah, and maybe just also like a quick addition, um, because I only realized now that maybe some people don't know what um, what we mean when we say logic. Um, and maybe also like the thing that you probably just meant is like some kind of symbolic logic so it's not like uh, i don't think in germany that's a thing but like in uh, america there is like the school subject of uh, maybe leading a discussion or arguing and that's not really like logic but logic is like the uh, yeah no, i get what you mean it's not logic in the way of like you make an argument it's like a mathematical um theory You can also say fuzzy mathematics, like fuzzy logic in its sense is kind of uh, a degree, uh, not a degree, a subtopic of fuzzy mathematics. It's just the way you express things is not with the normal logic of zero or one, but in degrees. So it's kind of not just black and white, but all the gray layers. Yeah, in it, it has gray scales. Yeah. yeah, that's a good way to put it. Um, and you also write your bachelor's thesis, what fuzzy logic has to do with artificial neural networks. Can you at least in some sentences say what a neural network is? And Yeah, so um, a neural network is a network out of a bunch of neurons. And um, we kind of try to model the way the brain works somehow. So we have inputs and A neuron can take an input, does some kind of activation functions to it, and then we have an output. And um, then you take a lot of those neurons and put them in a fancy network with like graph structures and everything. And the beautiful thing about it is that you can train it. So we have an input, and at the end of the network we have a predicted output. And then we have um, the output that we actually want to have, so the target output. And then we can say, okay, your error, the error of the network is such and such. And the network can then take that error to train itself and become better and give us the correct output. So it's kind of getting feedback on how good or bad the output is. And yeah. then by this, it can improve its output. Yeah. Then we now move to your topic. So you try to combine artificial intelligence with fuzzy logic, or is that maybe a wrong depiction of what you're doing? No, that's exactly correct. Um, only I would say I didn't combine it. Like, it's a large topic, and I'm only doing something at the end of it. Um, it actually is around since, like, the 70s. 1975 is the earliest paper I found on it. And um, 
there are a lot of ways to combine these two topics. And the basic idea is that we really like to express knowledge in a way that we understand it, which is the fuzzy part of it. And then we also like to not have experts, but to learn things from data itself. This is the neural, neural network part of it. And then we just want to smush that together somehow to get something that expresses knowledge in a way that we understand it, but we don't have to feed anything into it, only the data. That is kind of the, the main idea behind neurofuzzy systems. And um, yeah, there's a lot of work on it. When I got into this topic, I was, I, I didn't know, I was very naive. I have never heard of it before. When you Google neurofuzzy on Google, uh, you find like, the teeny tiniest of Wikipedia pages about it. You think like, this is nothing. And then you just, you find this amount of work that would take a lifetime to read and probably categorize like in a way that you understand which architecture is doing what and why. Because all of these people had different ideas to combine them. And uh, also everyone gave it a different name, which makes your job way easier, of course. <laughs> so, um Yeah, it's just, it's a really big topic, which you wouldn't think, because I've never heard about it before. You probably haven't. Um, a lot of Coxie people I know haven't, which is a shame, and which is why I want to talk about it, because it's really cool. Um, but yeah, it's, it's amazing, actually, because in the end, you not only have something where you can say, okay, that is the output, I can understand it, but we also have, we don't have the black box problem, essentially. Like the back box problem is another thing with neural networks, uh, where I said we have this big network of neurons and they do stuff and train themselves and get better. We actually at the end can't tell what the decision is in the network to reach certain outcomes. But with this we can. It's designed in such a way that we know, uh, okay, if these activations are activated, then the network has learned this and that. Can you maybe give an example on how that works? Because... How I know the um, black box example is that you kind of ignore whatever is happening in between um, mm -hmm. and just see the input and get the output. Mm -hmm. and, and how far is that different for fuzzy AI? Um, well, the thing is with like the newer fuzzy systems, you usually only have three layers. So that is, again, a problem because it might not be as good as neural networks that have more layers. But the way it is um, designed is that you have three layers where you have the input and you apply the fuzzy sets to the inputs, or the fuzzy membership functions to the inputs. So um, maybe just let me give an example. The problem is that you want to know how to fertilize your plant better. And you have the chemicals, nitrogen, phosphorus, or potassium. And then you have the fuzzy membership functions. Those would be low, medium, high, and would be the levels of chemicals that you put in the soil of your plant. And um, then you have those activations, how much they belong to a certain class. And then you combine those different activations with activations from another, uh, from another chemical. So you have like medium nitrogen, high potassium. And that is your new neuron. That is then the if part of the rule. So I say if I have low nitrogen and high phosphorus or high potassium, then something happens. So that is already the if part. The if part is implied in the way the network is designed. And uh, then the then part is calculated. So like then your plant might grow more or less. And um, 
So basically, the network structure already tells us the possible rules that we could have. And in the end, if it's trained, we can see, okay, it learned those ways. Those are then my rule base at the end. Did that make sense? Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Um, you already said that, uh, or we realized that we don't know very much about it. So um, how did, did you find it at all? Like... <laughs> Was that in a course somewhere? Did you come up with that on your own? Or were you asked by a professor to, to look into that? Um, the idea actually was like from a, a final project for a course at the university. And um, the thing I talked about with fertilizing plants was actually the problem we wanted to solve. Like we could do basically anything. We could have done something way easier. We should have done something <laughs> way easier, but then I wouldn't be here today. So. Um, And basically, we wanted to solve this problem of um, that there are big citrus orchids and um, the farmers are basically putting too much chemicals in the soil because they just think more is better. And uh, we wanted to try and find out what the ideal combination of chemicals would be. And from there, I went on to Google and then I spent like a week on Google <laughs> and then I emerged with neurofuzzy systems. Guys, let's do this. The problem is that uh, there isn't really a Python library you can just import really easily. So, of course, I had to code one myself. <laughs> and... Um, Yeah, and it was really fun, and I got more invested into the whole thing, and then I just was like, okay, let's make this my bachelor thesis. That sounds like you kind of stumbled onto this topic, didn't know yeah, what you were getting completely. into. completely. And <laughs> then once you realized you were already too deep to let it go. That happens a lot with me, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> um, other than, like, we now know that, This one problem can be solved by it, but is there like a way of characterizing problems that can in general be solved by that? Because I would assume that, um, I mean, you, you get some advantage from it, but I would say that like reword problems, but that's like every problem that we have. Mm -hmm. So every time we would try to, to tackle something that we would need that, is there like something more concrete that we think like um, if we have a problem like this, then we could try this approach? Yeah, I think um, if you have a big data set favorably and you want to know what underlying words you have in that data set. So um, just really anything. Um, for example, it's used a lot in medical diagnosis. Um, it's applied to like image recognition where you can have also pattern recognition and um, you can basically make rules if those pixels are like near there and there on this location then diagnosis probability high or something. Um, so just really any data set where you want to know if then rules. If you have satellites on a city and you want to predict where the traffic would be most likely Uh, congested, then you can also have if-then rules in it. Like, it, it doesn't stop, you can do it anywhere. <laughs> mm -hmm. It was just thinking it to me, without being really deep into logic, mm. this sounds really natural, because normally when I think about different conditions, I'm also often going into, well, if that happens, then if this and this event occurs, then I might get this output. Mm -hmm. 
um, maybe thinking about fuzzy logic and especially fuzzy logic makes it easier when you put it into the real context because when you've never heard about it, it might sound really abstract to people yeah. and abstract topics are often hard to grasp. Mm. So by explaining it in a way of, well, you also walk around and kind of do those fuzzy predictions makes it um, a bit easier for me to understand actually. And also I'm, I'm fascinated by uh, how this is uh, sometimes more applicable than like other AI because like usually um, you want just like a prediction like when is the traffic bad or something and that's like the topic that you would uh, solve like maybe with artificial intelligence if that's like the the thing you're into um, but also then like over the last years there's like um, within the ethics of AI community like the call for explainable AI and then uh, like something like this comes in and you don't try to just have the prediction and then say, oh, I have no idea how the model came up with that prediction, just trust it. Uh, but you have like, oh, we have this model and it not only gives a prediction, but derives a rule. And then you can just use that rule and then you have like the thing that explains itself kind of. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, what you mentioned um, is like the black box problem, obviously, that we talked about earlier. And, uh, for example, I think a big thing is if you get accepted to a job and you have to make this multiple choice list at the beginning and at the end you either get accepted or not and it's based on some kind of AI problem that can't tell you why you got accepted or not accepted. And this could then tell you, well, you somewhere clicked, you don't like working, so we didn't accept you. Like, uh, that is basically the thing. It's why it's so cool. And it's why I don't understand why we don't have a university course about it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what I might say, though, that a big difference between why we probably don't use it as much is because, one, um, there isn't that much code about it, like, that is accessible on GitHub or something unless I finally finish my bachelor thesis. <laughs> and um, the other thing is that you can't. You can only have three layers. That is kind of the problem. You don't have as many parameters as you could with like other deep learning models, and um, that is something that I think is also like being developed on. Like it said, it's a really old topic, but it's still um, it's still being researched on. So um, we might get into how to make it more convolutional, how to add more layers to it, how to add more parameters to it, to make it even better. But I think right now, just because normal neural networks have so much more parameters to train on, they do have better performance and are faster and easier and are already on GitHub. And why do I have to care about this? Mine already works. We just mentioned your bachelor's thesis. So are you, in general, just looking at fuzzy neural networks? Or like, are you trying to create... Um, a repository or what exactly are you doing? Um, well, I had different ideas. The first idea was to do like kind of like a literature review where I try to find like the most popular ones. Um, those kind of already exists. And also if you really would try to go back and like go from the 70s to now, 
your, ed, your, your master's or doctor thesis, like this is way out of um, my range for bachelor's. And um, so what I also found more interesting because I could code was that I just try to design my own network. Um, I haven't found this in literature yet. It might exist. I don't know. I haven't found it yet. So I'm, I'm just saying it's probably my own idea. And um, the idea is that the other kinds of neurophysic systems always have like one predicted output at the end. So you can use it as a predictor for something. You can say if this, then this, and then you have just like one nice number that you can uh, play around with. But um, I just wanted to learn just the rules, just the if-then rules. So in the end, you don't accumulate every single rule, have one output, and then have the error of that output. You have the error of every single individual rule. And that way, you don't have information loss, and you can train it better. You can train the rules better because you treat them individually. You don't just mash them up in the end to make one giant prediction. Mm -hmm. And uh, that is kind of what I'm actually doing, yeah. Is there then, because I think like the the number of rules, is that something that you pick as a hyperparameter of the model? Or is like the model, can it come up with as many rules as it needs to describe the data? Um, well, the way I wrote it currently is that just every possible combination of uh, chemicals, of inputs, is considered. Every possible combination is a rule in of itself. The rule just might be very bad. So in the end, I only take the best rules, obviously. Okay, yeah, yeah okay, so you, you go to every possible rule and then you make a cutoff somewhere and say, I want the best yeah, five I, or every rule that performs better than a certain exactly. threshold, yeah. And that way you can have rules from data, which you didn't know before. <laughs> And like when someone would ask you, how does one rule output look like? Is it just kind of a calculation? Is it just statistics? How can a person who has never seen such an output imagine it looking like? Um, well, the final output that I would give to the farmers basically would be if um, you have maybe these weather conditions right now, so those would also be fuzzy sets. So I don't know, if cloudy much, uh, if sun low, something like that, then um, uh, nitrogen low, then I would give a range for what low means. So I have like, the, I think it's like percentage and that you can like gram per meter or something. And so if potassium low, Good. <laughs> so uh, what, what you basically get is like, um, for, for me is, if you do this, if you uh, put those chemicals with those levels in the soil, then the plants will grow. If you put those other concentrations in the soil, then your plants will grow badly. So it's, it's just... It's, it isn't even like a calculation at the end of it. In the end, you really just get uh, um, linguistic terms for it. So it's like really natural. It's how mm -hmm. we would say it. It's how we speak. And that's kind of the idea of it that like everyone can understand at the end what's going on. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's no numbers. It's just if such and such low, then such and such good, maybe. <laughs> 
I'm also right now, so the input is always something, also like a fuzzy thing, right? So you go like, oh, the I amount of... It. Like the, I think what you mean is if you already have to falsify the input for the model. Yeah, yeah. So basically, like, um, I mean, like the data we measure always mm -hmm. has like, of course, variance, but we always have like a concrete data point that we want to put in somewhere. Then that's what you do. Yeah. Yeah. You put that in the model. The model does all the rest for you. And how does it do it? So like, for example, when you put weather in, you could say, okay, we have 20% clouds, mm -hmm. um, 50% humidity, and 25 degrees. Mm -hmm. And does, how does that fuzzify those parameters? Um, then the network goes on to apply these membership functions. So like activations functions from normal neurons, they're just a bit special. And... Um, Yeah, basically you say, okay, you have 20% clouds, you said. So that would be uh, to a certain degree, maybe to a degree of 0.9 would then be activated in a membership of low. Mm -hmm. And it would be uh, to a degree of 0.5 to the membership of medium and 0.1 to the membership of high. So at the end, you only have the activations 0.9, 0 0.5, 0 0.1. For the parameter cloudiness? Yes, for, um, for mm -hmm. the activation of cloud 20%. Yeah, I mean, it almost, almost sounds like you are losing like information, but then that's probably like information that really is not, not that relevant for solving the problem. And that's like, it filters out the noise by, by default or... Oh, yeah, what's the idea you, behind that? You're definitely right. You are losing the correct information of like it was 20% at some point, but you don't really need it. You only go clouds, maybe like medium or clouds low in the end. So you don't really need the 20%. And um, what did you mean with noise? Like, I, I guess what, what, what you could say is that... Um, The, uh, you, you do have to have a lot of samples in the data, so the data set has to be quite quite large. So um, because you read everything out of the data, so if the data is incorrect or like sampled, well, correct is actually more important than large, but um, if the data is incorrect somewhere, then you would get a false rule if you had an outlier or noise, like you said. And uh, that is bad. And that would happen if you had like 50% noise in your data set, which I don't. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you would have to make sure your data set is prepared and is clean and there are no outliers. And it does make sense. Okay. Yeah. I was also just thinking when you normally, well, at least when you're not doing it as a profession, as you, when you're just hobby gardening, hmm. you wouldn't exactly calculate or measure how many clouds there are, how many percentage clouds there are, or how much humidity there is, or whatever. So you would also more or less just describe, well, it's kind of cloudy, it's yeah. some clouds, there are a lot of clouds. So even when we describe the parameters in our normal language, we would use fuzzy terms, which kind of, when you then put it into an algorithm, makes sense to also use it there. but. I have 
kind of a feeling that, especially in algorithms, we tend to try to use numbers which are as correct as possible. And the fuzzy logic kind of tries to come up with a counter approach to tackle this accuracy issue in a way. Well, yeah, I hope my words would be correct in the end. <laughs> so they would be accurate, but... Um... But you kind of dodged the whole, like, um, over-scientification um, <laughs> or, like, like breaking everything down into numbers. Like, we said, like, oh, yeah, there's 20% clouds. And I'm like, what does it mean, 20% clouds? Do I have to make a photo of the sky mm -hmm. and then count the pixels where there's a cloud or not? That doesn't make sense. So we say, oh, yeah, it's very cloudy today or it's not that cloudy or there are no clouds. So yeah. we, we already have, like, the, the fuzzy set in that, like, counteracts this uh, need for, for data to be, like, specified in a way that um, is maybe unnatural for, for a way of thinking, but is done, like, in, in a lot of science work yeah yeah exactly it's way more understandable to just say it's not that cloudy today yeah yeah that's kind of the idea behind it that you have an understandable result that yeah. people can actually understand and that makes it also a bit easier to use for the user in the end because you don't have to measure the exact numbers and just can go go out and kind of well you more estimate or uh, well it, it kind of depends on what the problem is also mm -hmm. But like, for example, um, with like the fertilization of plants, um, you still need to give some kind of range at the end mm -hmm. of what low really means. And so I guess um, it is also trying to come up with the range of what low means. In It's part of the training. It's part of what you train. You don't say at the beginning low means from there to there. And um, so it is important that, like, what you put in there is correct and is, like, the precise data. But once it is trained, uh, you could just kind of skip the falsification process of it all and just go, yeah, okay, it's kind of cloudy. Mm. And uh, that's the beauty of it. But then that's, like, the um, segmentation of the classes uh, depend on the data set like if there's like only one day where it's very sunny and then there's like a lot of uh, steps between like it's very cloudy and it's somewhat cloudy um, then it's like uh, makes the class from somewhat cloudy to sunny very big and maybe like unintuitive for, for humans like it's again important that the data set then um, covers all the data points in a yeah. rather similar manner. Yeah, like um, maybe it just is not that important for you right now that it is always sunny because you live in Osnabrück. Um, so you might not care what the rules would be if it is always sunny. You care for what you have in the data. And if it is always cloudy, then you only care about the rules that have always cloudy in them. You don't really care for what happens when it's sunny. But if you wanted to know, then yes, you would need a data set that uh, does have all of the inputs in some ways. All right. Um, then we come to the usual part where we ask you um, what fields of cognitive science are really relevant for that, because we're always like interested in how interdisciplinary cognitive science is, and that's one of the reasons we are so fascinated by it. And uh, what are the fields of cognitive science that 
really play into this topic? What do you think? Um, mathematics and well, specifically measurement theory, which is where the whole fuzzy logic thing comes from. And just computer science, being able to implement it somehow. And well, I think this whole interview was different to other interviews, not because it was not interesting, just because it was quite abstract in some degree. Mm -hmm. So we tried to make a really abstract topic graspable. Mm. If a person at some point started to kind of lose track of what we were talking about and kind of just needs one reminder, what would you hope that people take out of this whole conversation? If you want to learn the underlying words of data and um, you want to do it with like neural networks, then consider using neural fuzzy systems. They're cool. <laughs> okay. Uh, thank you very much for being here today, talking to us, explaining us this whole topic, which I haven't heard before or which I didn't know before. Me neither. I, I can understand. You, you understood it really well. Like the way you talked it back to me, it was... It was the idea behind it. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty <Thanks>. good. <laughs> and yeah, thanks a lot for your time. Thanks. When you enjoy listening to us, the best way to support us is by following us on your chosen podcast app. This could either be Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or the website of the Cognitive Science Student Journal. Another good way to support us is by following our Instagram account, which is called kaleidoscience underscore pod. On our Instagram account, you will also get regular information on the next episode. Thanks a lot for supporting us. This was Kaleidoscience, hosted by Elisa Palme and Sönke Löw. Produced by Elina Ohnesorge, Elisa Palme, Sönke Löw and Sophie Kühne. Produced in collaboration with the Cognitive Science Student Journal. The music was produced by Jan-Lukas Schröder. The logo was designed by Annika Richter. Thank you for listening and joining us on our journey through conversations on Cognitive Science.